0: As something is wrong with the healthcare industry. And as an almost any problem, I say that it can be solved using technology. Today we have Mukund Murthy on the show to talk about drug discovery and AI, artificial intelligence. First, who is Mukund? Well, he is a 17-year-old passionate about protein biochemistry. Some of his projects include generating small molecule drugs for the coronavirus and using variational autoencoders to give nutritional tips. We're going to talk about that later on. He's also interning at 99 and Beyond, a startup using reinforcement learning to improve the synthesizability of AI-generated small molecules. Makund, I'm sure we're gonna have a very interesting conversation today. Welcome to the future. Welcome to the 2045 podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Super excited to to talk about my journey and and go over some of the recent developments in drug discovery as well with DeepMind and everything.
0: Okay, great. Uh, let's jump into the first question, which is uh, just to get to know you better. How did you develop your passion for biochemistry and eventually drug discovery with AI? In a few words, what's been your path?
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, it started. Uh, it started in ninth grade with this uh, science Olympiad competition I did called protein modeling, and we basically had to model the anti-CRISPR part of the uh, the anti-CRISPR protein, which is basically the the mechanism that viruses have evolved to basically fight against the CRISPR system developed develop in the immune system of bacteria. So I modeled that protein and I got super interested in structural biology. And then that summer I got to intern at a lab in IIT, Madras. So I got to do some dry lab docking. So docking is where you take a small molecule and uh, use software to try and bind it to a protein and see how well it binds. And it's part of it's one of the first steps of drug discovery. So I was helping with a cancer protein called an uh, N-methyltransferase, uh, and finding a molecule that can dock to, to that protein. Um, so yeah, after that, uh, I heard about uh, CASP-13, which is the protein-folding competition before this one. Uh, and that was super inspiring for me. I didn't really know what AI was back then. Um, so seeing that algorithms could, could actually tackle the protein-folding problem and solve it to some extent. Um, if I remember back then, it wasn't as uh, as close to like one a, one atom resolution as it is right now. I think it was more like three to like eight angstroms, which isn't really enough to get like a well defined structure. At least not enough for drug discovery, because in drug discovery you need like you need to see the binding pockets of the proteins. These are the place where the molecules actually bind. And back then, the AlphaFold algorithm wasn't uh, strong enough for that level of resolution. Um, but anyway, it's really what got me started in my AI journey, just taking some courses on Coursera and yeah, just building things up to where I am now through reading papers, replicating papers, and uh, to really this summer where I was able to intern at a startup uh, doing work with synthetic accessibility, which means how can you have artificial intelligence algorithms develop molecules that you can actually make in the lab, not fake molecules that you can't really make in the real world, because then it's kind of useless, right? So. Um, I did some work with also a sequence-based modeling for proteins. Uh, So how can you use, like, protein descriptors and protein features along with small molecule descriptors and small molecule features and train, like, these natural language processing models to uh, predict binding affinity between proteins and molecules. So instead of having to do the docking software I was talking about where you have to have the structure of the protein, how can you make it so that you don't even need the structure of the protein? And you can predict binding infinity without, without that information.
0: Okay, this sounds very interesting. And at the same time, uh, you know, the purpose uh, sometimes behind this episode is to, like, uh, inform the rest of the population in terms of, like, people who may just be hearing about this topic for the first time to let them know uh, in a nutshell what it, it is about. So the next question goes around that, and it is, what is one of the factors that makes conventional drug discovery or drug development so expensive, and how is AI revolutionizing this? How is it changing it? In you know, in simple words, how would you describe that? Yeah, so I think it's best to start from like where we were with this, like um,
1: I would say like a century ago, maybe a little more than a century, like 70 years, say. Um, we were literally just looking at bacteria in the soil. uh, and we were saying, you know, these these bacteria are producing molecules called antibiotics. And they're producing these antibiotics. Uh, against other bacteria, because you know bac- bacteria are like just like any other organism they're competing for resources, and when organisms compete for resources, they evolve, and one of the ways they evolve uh, and one of the things that happen when they evolve is they they produce these molecules that uh, that are essentially designed to kill other bacteria so they can get access to more resources and um, yeah, so so these were some of the first like antibiotics uh, that we saw. Um, and then we started to like filter more through the soil. We started seeing like antifungal inhibitors. And again, these are all being evolved by nature. so nothing really man had to design um, from scratch, atom by atom. So you know, so we, we, we started doing that, and then we reached like a threshold where we realized, you know this is a pretty ineffective method, just looking through the soil. What if we could actually design molecules ourselves using the natural molecules as inspiration for the molecules that we design? So, you know, at that point at that point, we started looking into something called structure-based drug discovery. And structure-based drug discovery is where you have a protein and you have a molecule, and you look at the active site of the protein. So the active site of the protein is the part of an enzyme, or it can be another type of signaling protein, like something called a kinase, which is uh, what basically transfers a group called a phosphate group to another protein. But basically, any protein, the active site is like the main part of the protein. It's a part that can activate the protein. So that's why it's called the active site, right? It can activate the function of the protein. So anyway, you basically look at the active site and you look at the amino acids in the active site. And amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. There's 20 different amino acids. And each of these amino acids has its own set of properties, right? So by looking at the amino acids in the active site, these fundamental building blocks of proteins, you can then say, how can I design a molecule that binds really strongly to this particular active site? Um, so, so that's what they do. They they started designing atom by atom um, to see. Okay, so maybe this amino acid is polar. So, a polar amino acid means it has like a partial charge to it, right? Yeah. Uh, how can I have a functional group uh, that binds to that polar group? And obviously, I'm simplifying it, but these are the kinds of questions we ask, like going atom by atom and seeing. How can you optimize the binding? Um, so, so that started happening. It was pretty strenuous. Took a long time because you had to get the structure of the protein.
0: And that took, for, it took a lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah, I was actually reading uh, a book recently about um, protein discovery, and it wasn't really about proteins, it was actually about the ribosome, you know, uh, this organelle for everyone listening, but it discovered that actually sometimes all of these things can get a little uh, long, right? Uh, Doing crystallography or some other kinds of techniques, I think. I'm not really familiar with those, uh, but I guess that's what makes AI so useful in this case, right?
1: Yeah, um, you, you made a really good point. Uh, like with structure-based drug discovery, when you have to get the crystal structure of a protein, that was really one of the rate limiting steps um, so of a, a, a structure-based drug discovery. And uh, for anyone, like if you, if you I think a good way to understand how hard it is to actually is to feel like what it's like to be a scientist who's doing crystallography and like the type of frustration and patience <laughs> and trial it involves. And for that, I recommend a book called A Billion Dollar Molecule. Um, it's It has really good descriptions. Like, you, you feel like you're with the scientists uh, yeah. as they're discovering the protein. And um, you feel like you're with them when the computer crashes and they lose weeks of oh. hard work, um, when they realize that the protein they were getting the structure of isn't the right protein they were going after. Um, there's just so many different like holes and like hoops they have to get through. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing now that we have AlphaFold and uh, it's obviously not I mean, I would still say X-ray diffraction is probably better, but like we're almost getting there. The gap is so tiny now between uh, crystallography and, and AlphaFold uh, for most proteins. I would say there's some proteins where they're just so loopy and so flexible uh, that you probably need something like crystallography or um, another technology like cryo-electron microscopy um, which is, it's a big word, but essentially <laughs> it has to do with Cryo technology and basically freezing, uh, freezing proteins. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's super amazing stuff. Now, instead of going through all of those like, like years of trying to get a structure, months to years of trying to get a structure, you might just feed in a sequence to a AI model and, and get it within a few days, which is crazy.
0: Wow, that's re- really like a big big advancement, right?
1: Yeah, uh, with AlphaFold 2.0. Um, of, uh, oftentimes there can be hype like with, with any discovery that, that happens there's hype around it right? Yeah. I think um, sometimes the hype is good, sometimes the hype is bad I think in this case, personally my opinion the hype is justified, I think this is a huge achievement, I don't think this is something that's like purely just hype mm-hmm. um, like they achieve some remarkable results, how do you quantify these results is like a question I had in my head because you can just say something but unless there are numbers behind it you don't really know what's going on they hadn't really published a paper either. I don't think they have their code accessible, so we can't really play with it yet. But they did give a number in their blog post. It was a blog post by DeepMind. They said they got 98 uh, GDT. And GDT, I forget exactly what the metric stands for, but it's basically saying that 98% of the amino acids in a particular protein were less than a particular threshold from their actual positions. So that threshold could be one angstrom. So that means that 98% of the amino acids were predicted less than one angstrom away from the actual structure, which is really, really, really good.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I don't think us humans would have done it better in like a less amount of time. So, wow. And also uh, talking about the power that this technology can have, do you see it replacing a lot of jobs?
1: With AI and drug discovery, uh, there's, there's a ton of pitfalls and like things, that, things that are still challenging. Uh, it's not like you have a solution that just kind of solves everything. Yeah. Even, with, um, even with AI for protein folding, I'll just continue that example because I think it, it flows into the last part of the conversation. When they get a structure, like, you know, it's, it's really not the end of the day um, because, first of all, one protein can have many structures mm-hmm. uh, based on where it is in the cell and what it's doing. And second of all, um, there's a really good, uh, there's a really good um, publication I'd recommend people who are interested in this. It's called uh, Science, Transi- Science Translational News. And um, there's a writer, his name is Derek Lowe, and he writes about this, that even if we get this perfect structure and we derive the perfect molecule that binds to it, you might spend a year or two on it and then wow. realize, oh, this is the wrong protein.
0: But I what do you mean by protein. the wrong protein?
1: Yeah, so um, basically what, what you want to do in drug discovery is you want to find a protein that is relevant to the disease.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so if, for example, we're doing cystic fibrosis, mm-hmm. uh, we want to target, I think it's called the CFTR protein. Um, it's a chloride, it's basically a channel, it's a membrane protein, I think, that controls the transportation of chloride ions. I think when there's an excess, um, I remember the exact biology, but I remember when there's an excess of chloride ions, that uh, that leads to more viscous mucus, right? Uh, and that's what leads to like the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. If they go for something other than the CFTR protein, then they're not really changing anything. They might even be causing toxic side effects because you're interfering with another process in our bodies. You're not interfering with the relevant one. So that's what I mean by wrong protein is you have to find the right... Um, protein that's relevant to the disease that you're trying to cure If you find another protein uh, that's wrong then it is you might be causing worse toxic toxic side effects oh, yeah. and really this is what I internalize like when you're listening to a drug commercial they have like the happiness going on in the background but then there's that person who's listing like 50 side effects and this is because you know you might might not be going for the most optimal protein um, and it's kind of binding to a bu- bunch of other things at the same time which leads to, like, these side effects um, that are often toxic. And you have to really think about the trade-offs. And that's why, in my opinion, um, what's going to happen in the next decade with drug discovery, uh, the way I see it is you have, like, a few subjects in drug discovery. You have the chemistry part of it, which is, I have a protein. How can I design molecules that bind to the protein? And then you have a biology part of it, which is, how do I find the right protein in the first place? Yeah. So right now, we don't have the biology figured out. So we might be having the entirely wrong protein. We have the chemistry part somewhat figured out, but we don't have the biology part figured out. And that's why even though AI can optimize the chemistry, we still need a lot of biology experts and disease experts telling us what's the best way to target these proteins. Do we target a single protein? If so, what protein do we target? Do We target the interface of multiple proteins. Like It's called a protein-protein interaction. Mm-hmm. So it's really splitting it apart into biology and chemistry. I think AI has somewhat chemistry done down right now, um, some to some extent. Biology is really where we're struggling, but that means there's a lot of opportunity there as well, and that's where um, even in chemistry, like there's AI isn't going to take much jobs because AI can only give suggestions. We have to verify them, and we don't really know how AI is making its decisions based on the chemistry. We don't even know if it understands the chemistry. Mm-hmm. It might just be making associations. And what I mean by that is it says, oh, I've seen this before, therefore. It might be the same thing right now. It's like finding trends mm. in the data um, sure. and that might be just spurious correlations. And by spurious I mean it could just be by chance that there's a correlation but it doesn't actually have anything to do with the chemistry. It just happened randomly by chance and because of that it's making just completely wrong deductions and humans always have to be there to verify that.
0: Okay that's very good to know I think because it was actually part of the next question that I was going to ask you, like, how do you see this field in the next 10 years, for example? So as I am understanding, uh, what we're missing is really figuring out that biology part so yeah. we can actually like complete the whole system. And what, exactly. what would you add on to that?
1: Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. Um, that's exactly what I was going for, is like the biology part is the question mark right now. Um, it was a question mark 30 years ago, and it still is the question mark. So the question is, when can we actually remove the question mark? Um, there was a professor who was hearing from the other day. Uh, and uh, he was a Canada research chair. Uh, this was a while back, so I forget his, his exact name. But I remember what he, one thing he said is, like, 15 years ago, if you were to tell a scientist about CRISPR, they would think it's like not possible, um, yeah. based on where we are right now with clinical trials. Uh, so, like, what would, what would he think about, like, what does he think is something that's not possible within 15 years that would be, like, really surprised if it actually happened, just like CRISPR, how we really surprised by it now. Um, and what he said is, like, biological certainty, meaning you know exactly how the system works from, like, A to B, uh, and you know what proteins a molecule interacts with, um, what are all the signaling pathways, you know, um, what are all the... Um, you know, the modifications that go on, post-translational modifications. So like how are proteins modified after they get transcribed, uh, translated. Um, so, you know, there's all these questions and all these unknowns uh, in biology. Normally when you have like a network in biology, um, it just means that two things are associated with each other. Um, so you can do like a, like a gene expression assay and you can see, you know, this gene is expressed at the same time that this gene is expressed. And normally how you see that in a network or a graph is you can you, you can represent each gene as a circle and you connect them with a line. But that line doesn't mean it's causal. It just means they're associated. So it doesn't mean one gene causes the other. It just means they're there at the same time. We need causal information. We need this causes this, causes this, causes this. But right now we don't have that. We only have this happens with this at the same time. And so that's where we need to go.
0: Do you think AI could help in that?
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm not too much into causal AI, but I know there's a field of causal AI. Um, one of my friends uh, who's also a teenager is like working in that space. He's really passionate about that. But it's about, yeah, there, there, there is AI out there, which is, can you use this data to form causal graphs? So normal graphs are just these circles with lines connecting them. Causal graphs actually have arrows. So this influences this this variable then influences two other variables like it causes it it's a cause behind it so yes i know there is work uh done there but uh i don't think it's moving at that fast of a pace right now just because systems are so complex and we just need a lot more data as well um so that process i think will take a while
0: very interesting yeah for sure coming From a life sciences related area, like that sort of field, and then uh, discovering AI and knowing how it could revolutionize biology and drug discovery. What would you tell to somebody who is into biology, for example, and doesn't yet see like these relation between AI and biology and how they could actually join to form a very very powerful thing? How how did you personally see this, and are were there any maybe challenges that you faced along your way of learning AI?
1: Yeah, um, there's a book I know I uh, uh I'm a, I'm a big I'm a big reader. Uh, I know. There's yeah, book that like got me into. Uh, AI and biology. It's called Deep Medicine by Eric Topol. It goes over everything, from imaging to, from imaging, so like, uh, you know, all of the, um, I don't know, lung cancer, right? Like, just images of your your lungs, images, uh, and using that to classify certain diseases. Um, I was like, I was sort of intrigued by that, but that wasn't, like, really my core passion. But then I got to the section on, like, transcription factors and, like, stuff going on on the molecular level, which became really my interest so it just covers a wide span of things and you can really figure out what intersection are you passionate about are you passionate about like medical ai are you passionate about molecular ai um like what what scale are you passionate about like using it on tissues organs you know entire humans clinical results like phenotypes on the outside or are you interested on the molecular level uh protein protein interactions docking proteins to molecules so i think that's like the first step is like figuring out like what are you more passionate about on the scale from like humans all the way down to the individual molecules uh like in the cell like what scale after doing that um the next step is really just to ramp up coding skills at that point i didn't know coding like until a year and a half ago some of my friends started in second grade so it definitely felt overwhelming and i know how that feels um but with coding it's just about like not overthinking it uh and just starting small, like it doesn't even have to be related to biology. Um, just make a project doing like tic-tac-toe or trying to solve a problem that you, you, um, you see in the real world. Maybe like it has something to do with, um, you know, your, your productivity system. Like how are you tracking your productivity? If that's something you're passionate about, that's something that got me into it. So I'm giving that example, but it can really be anything. Um, don't overthink it. I think that's something people are prone to. I, over, I overthink it for sure. Um, I had to be like, I like the first project I have to do has to be this amazing thing that like blows everyone away, but it doesn't have to be like that. Like you can start small and you can start with like Code Academy and things like that. So yeah, just work work your coding skills up, and then after you do that, there's tons of AI courses, Udemy, uh, Coursera. The one by Andrew Ng is particularly uh, particularly helpful. That's the one I started with. But then after that, you're you're kind of home free. After that point there's no more courses that can really teach you much else it's really just about reading papers building projects and learning as you go Um, learn by doing essentially after that
0: okay pretty good pieces of advice and finally i saw in your website that you read uh, around two to three books uh, a month or is it one per week
1: yeah i try to aim for one one per week it's been a bit challenging with college jobs and like this craziness of a school schedule. Like, uh, every other week, we're going from, like, remote to remote and hybrid.
0: Yeah, uh, sure.
1: Because of COVID. But, yeah, I normally try to go for one per week.
0: Oh, that that's very outstanding, in my opinion. So, how do you do it? Like, are there any techniques, speed reading techniques that you recommend? And uh, would that be actually uh, called speed reading? And if so, how do you manage to retain all the information?
1: Yeah, um, so... Honestly, one thing I realized is, like, um, so if I read slow, like, I just, I'm not drawn into it, uh, like, the book I'm reading, I just get bored, because, uh, you can talk and, like, listen to someone else talking much faster than you read, and so, like, your mind is trained at what, I don't know, so many words per second, I I forget the exact number, but when you read, you're, like, reading much less than that, so your mind just automatically gets distracted. Um... So that's why reading fast isn't actually a bad thing. I think I think it's first, like, you have to clear that misconception that it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because you're more engaged and you actually retain more when you read faster. That's what I actually saw with a lot of my friends was when I was in elementary school. I had a couple of friends who could just, like, get through a book in it in, like, a day. They could binge read it in, like, six hours in a day. And I was like, how in the <laughs> world do you do that? That's insane. Um, yeah. And these were, like, super long, like, Harry Potter books and stuff. Wow. Um, so... And they, like, they knew every single detail from it. And it's, yeah, when you read fast, you, you, you feel like you're there. Um, so that's what's really cool about reading fast. In terms of how you actually do it, um, number one is just like read consistently. You get much better in it after a while. But number two is you have to unlearn some of the stuff that you learned like when you were younger, like reading things out loud. Um, you, you have like this voice inside your head that's reading as you go, and it's kind of speaking each word out loud as you read. You have to kind of figure out how to turn that voice off. Um, there's a couple of things you can do. You can like count while reading. You can count out loud and count your head while reading. Um you can like play music while reading, so you can't really say anything in your head while you're reading. But the goal is essentially to scan um, and basically recognize the meaning of each word instead of actually saying it out loud, like verbally in your head or uh, out loud. Uh, and the goal is to be able to basically see a word as a point and like instantly know like the meaning of that word without scanning like letter by letter. Uh, if that makes sense. Um, sure. so that's kind of the, the way to do it. Um, yeah, so there's a finger technique as well, which is, you know, just using your finger and underlining the words as you go. Um, by basically moving your finger, uh, under the line, your eyes are attracted to motion. So, um, when you, when you, when you move your finger, your, your eyes will normally move faster to follow your finger you can kind of of use your finger to set the pace it's a really cool technique that sped me up i think by 1.5 or 1.25 at first um so yeah i got a lot of these ideas from a person called jim quick and he's he's really helpful like his podcasts his website um his courses are really good for this kind of thing so that's kind of where i'd recommend your listeners to look
0: awesome i'm sure this will be very interesting for a lot of us Thank you so yeah. much for coming to the show, Mukund. I'm sure we're going to continue hearing amazing things about you and the projects you're developing. So keep us keep us informed and yeah, thank you for coming.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Hey, I really appreciate that you've listened till the end of this episode. The reason why I interview people in this field is because experts say that AI will be kind of the last invention that humans will ever have to create. Because as you've seen it, it has various implications in a lot of fields, including even complex things such as drug discovery. So it's important to keep us informed, keep us prepared for the future that's coming, because the future is already happening now. The singularity is near. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode in particular. Please feel free to share it with everyone you want if you did enjoy it. And connect with McCund. I'll leave you social media links in the description below as always. Remember that we have weekly episodes an in Instagram and Twitter accounts so you can follow us there. I'll be posting daily updates and quotes so you can have the mindsets that you need in order to succeed. I'll see you in the next one. Bye. Thank you.